Hello and welcome to Mid Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Corey Clark. She's a behavior scientist, uh, the executive director and co-founder of the Adversarial Collaboration Project, and also a visiting scholar at the psychology department at the University of Pennsylvania. We started off today by speaking about some of the research work that Corey has done on uh, how differences in male and female psychology on average has been influencing academia, uh, the culture of academia, since there's been this enormous influx of women into it in recent decades. And then in the extended part of the episode, we talk about, we spoke about how the influx of women into various other institutions and into politics and into public life in general has influenced everything from uh, attitudes towards homophobia, attitudes towards public health, um, whether or not propaganda works differently on men and on women. Uh, that extended version of the episode can be found at louiseperry.substack.com, where, as ever, you can also find the whole back catalogue of extended episodes, the bonus episodes I do fortnightly with my husband, and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. Many of you will know that Christianity is a subject of fascination for me, and the role of Christianity in shaping the modern world is a theme I return to again and again on the podcast. My view is that we really can't understand the world or ourselves without getting to grips with it, which is why I'm very glad to point you towards a new online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, thoughtful, engaging. It assumes absolutely no prior knowledge. It's presented by the wonderful Glenn Scrivener, who has been a guest on the MMM podcast previously and I've also been a guest on his show. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are based around some beautiful animated stories that illustrate the Christian message. You can check it out for free at 321course.com forward slash MMM. Just enter your email, choose a password and you're in. There's no spam, there's no fees, just visit 321course.com forward slash MMM. And now onto the show. Shall we start, Corey, by talking about your suspicions in relation to why the culture in academia has changed as more women have come into academia? And then we can move on to other areas of public life. But, but starting with academia, what do you observe about some of the cultural changes that have happened and how could this potentially be linked to the influx of women? I actually started thinking about this issue just because of data that I uncovered in my own research. So I have a study... Um, where I surveyed psychology professors, like 480 something psychology professors at the top 130 institutions in the United States. So men are more likely to say that pursuit of truth is the principal goal of, sci uh, of science and we shouldn't be negotiating that goal against other priorities like psychological safety and social equity and these kinds of things, whereas women are more likely to say we should be balancing uh, pursuit of truth with with other sort of moral goals. And similarly, I see that women are less supportive of academic freedom than men. So men are more likely to think we should be free to study anything regardless of whether it causes offense. Um, and women are more likely to say, well, we should you know, support academic freedom so long as it doesn't cause offense to particular people or so long as it doesn't have potential to cause harm. And so I see this in my own data, um, but then I see these same patterns in a lot of other scholars work. So for example, if you look at surveys of undergrads, um, undergrad women are more likely to say, um, you know, we should shout down speakers who are saying offensive things. Um, a lot of these new policy changes in science, for example, the whole Springer Nature family of journals, which are like the most pre prestigious science journals in the whole entire world, 
um, they're changing their guidelines to incorporate these harm concerns. So they're saying we'll retract papers or we'll reject articles if they have potential to undermine the dignities of human social groups. Um, and I think what we're seeing in science and academia and higher education is an increase in um, the priorities of women and how we're conducting science and what we consider important in academia. Um, so, you know, people talk about cancel culture and they talk about the free speech crisis and things like that. And I think all of that can be tied to the priorities of women um, and those priorities now having more power than they used to because you know, 20, 50 years ago, women were very much the minority in academia. Uh, and now they're actually the majority at all levels. They make up the most undergrads by far, the most grad students, and now even the most professors as well. You obviously know this, but just to reiterate for the sort of the haters at home, <laughs> um, <laughs> what we're talking about is overlapping bell curves. So there will be individuals who are exceptions to this rule, lots of them. There will be men who are very like, rapidly in favor of cancel culture and women who are rapidly in favor of free speech um but it's this thing right that at the population level it becomes more obvious that the, you have exactly. these yeah, and traits right with any one individual man or woman you, you you can't necessarily know much about their specific views but when there are average differences between groups and then you fundamentally alter the demographics of an institution like higher education, those differences are often going to reveal themselves. So of course, tons of women are pro um, pursuit of truth and academic freedom and tons of men think we should be balancing you know, science with moral concerns. Um, but on average, women are more likely to think that science, really the, the purpose of science is to make the world a better place. It's not just to understand what's true about the world. It's to use that information to help people flourish, um, which means that often if a scientific finding is, is perceived by, uh, you know, a group of people, especially people who are in power, like the editors at journals or, um, you know, the, the presidents of professional societies, uh, if they view those as potentially harmful, they think there is no value to that information, even if it potentially is true. Um, so women are more likely to want to interfere with that. So across a bunch of different controversial topics, I see that women are more likely to say we should not be studying these topics anymore. I also see that women are more likely to endorse a lot of punitive actions toward peers who pursue controversial conclusions. So they're more likely to say we should ostracize them. We should call them names on social media. We should not hire them, even if they meet typical standards. We shouldn't publish their papers, even if their papers have merit, we uh, should, um, you know, essentially try to boot them out of the club of academia if they're pursuing things that I, um, that I don't find uh, helpful. And I think in addition to this thing where women maybe have a little bit more concern about harm and protecting vulnerable people, I think there's another thing going on, which is um, that people should be a little bit more socially expendable in women's psychology than in men's psychology. So men, because they evolved in these large coalitions and they were competing with other groups uh, for status and resources, men benefited from having maximally large coalitions. So they couldn't afford to just be kicking people out of the group left and right, because those are people who can potentially help in large coalitional competition. Women, on the other hand, they, uh, benefited more if they had like fiercely loyal and safe small social groups. So they would 
not want anyone in their social circle who posed a potential risk to them. And so women should be more inclined to just boot people out permanently and forever if they signal any sign to others that they're potentially risky or disloyal. Um, uh, so I think this strategy, which is, I would guess, like the cancel culture strategy of this total and permanent ostracism, if a person says something wrong or does something wrong, is something that would be more aligned with the female psychology of making sure I have a small but good group rather than the male uh, approach, which would be as big of a group as possible within certain boundaries, so long as people are still contributing something. That's really interesting. So why 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 would women? So I understand why men would would want to have these 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 big coalitions. Why would women want to have smaller and higher trust? Why would their threshold for trust be higher? I think the the Joyce Benenson framework, which is the men as warriors and women as warriors, uh, is a really useful one for thinking about this. So men were you know competing in these large groups against other people, so they they really want to have as many people on their team as possible because a bigger team is more likely to uh, defeat another group, especially a smaller group. Um, women are the warriors, which is they were essentially focused on their own survival and the survival of their offspring. So they don't benefit from having, in fact, the more people you have around, the more people pose a potential threat to you. And so what you should want to do is make sure your, your social group is a group that you can trust entirely and that you know they're only going to help you and they're not going to pose any risk to your survival or to the survival of your offspring. And, and you have to think about them and this is related to the overlapping bell curves. Like you have to think about them in relation to one another. Like, of course, women, it would be nice to have a large group of people that you could trust and that's going to, that are going to help you survive and help your offspring survive. Um, and men, of course, would rather cooperate with fiercely loyal people. Um, but just because men's survival and status um, was impacted more by working with huge groups of people and women more with these smaller loyal groups of people, you get this relative preference. Um, and then when you blow that up in society and you change, well, it used to be that 70% of people who are participating in politics and culture were men, and now it's maybe majority women, those small differences, those small psychological differences and differences in priorities and preferences, those are going to reveal themselves, I think, when when blown up on that large scale. Do we know what kind of relative numbers you need to see a culture shift? So is it 50-50 that you start, you know, or is it, or, or can a minority sometimes have outsized influence or mm. what do we know about that? That's a good question and I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Um, one thing that's been interesting to me is in academia, at least, you have sort of a majority of men and a majority of women who have op slightly opposite. So like the majority of women think, um, you know, we should be balancing academic freedom with social equity. And the majority of men think, no, we should just be supporting academic freedom. Um, so if you look at like average preferences between men and women, they are just tilted in such a way that I almost think if you had 51% women versus 51% men, you might see slight changes. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that's actually true. And in academia and also in broader society, like in things like journalism stuff and in, in, in positions of power and organizations and in the government, you had a really huge shift. You know, women used to be almost 
completely excluded from participating in these kinds of things. And now they're making up a majority in a lot of places and other places still not, you know, at 50-50. But as any group grows in size and gains more power, if they do have these differences and priorities, I think at some point you'll be able to see those. Um, and I think we're seeing them now. I don't know if it went slower or if it was smaller, if we wouldn't notice them. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's a good question. It's one I guess you could test theoretically. Although one of the things you, one of the things I'm wondering is if a small number of very loud people can potentially have an outsized influence. So, so if on a college campus, for instance, you have a small group of mostly women who are very, very pro council culture, maybe maybe they can swing a culture because maybe maybe most men don't care enough <laughs> to right. really sort of push back, even if that's not temperamentally how they're inclined. Yeah, so I, I see something kind of in support of that in my own data looking at psychology professors where I see um, professors who believe controversial conclusions are true are much likelier to self-censor than professors who don't. And so you have this kind of asymmetry in caring and willingness to speak up. So if you have the people pushing the boundaries are really scared of getting canceled, they're scared of being called names, you know, their careers are at risk. And the people who have these socially desirable beliefs are really loud and not only really loud, but really willing to attack people um, and go after people who challenge what they perceive to be the right thing uh, for science and, and academia, um, you will get, I think, disproportionate power um, where the people who are willing to be more aggressive and also be more vocal are going to have more power than the people who who won't do those things. So I, I do think we have sort of like a collective action problem happening where even if the majority of scholars, and I think this is true, the majority of scholars do actually completely support academic freedom and they do think science should be pursuing truth and they do not think we should be rejecting or retracting science that has potential to harm vulnerable groups. Um, that majority is also really terrified <laughs> of the vocal and aggressive minority. Um, and if everybody would like speak up at once, you know, you can't attack everyone. You can attack 70% of your peers at one time. But when you only have like a handful of people speaking up in defense of academic freedom and defense of studying even really controversial conclusions, um, it's really easy to take those individual people out. And that's, I think, what's been happening over the past five, 10 years with, with the whole cancel culture thing. Do you think that there are any upsides <laughs> to the feminization <laughs> to of academia? Mm, that's a good question. I was actually just thinking in general, like, what are some of the upsides of women and culture? I mean, one thing is they have expanded, like, which topics are being considered. And in fact, even in the, the study of, granted, you know, evolutionary psychologists have been studying sex and gender differences for a long time. But I have to imagine women have unique insights into female psychology just because they, they live with it and the experience that they know you know, what women do prioritize and what women worry about. Um, and so I, I have to imagine women have made all kinds of like specific intellectual contributions. Um, I also think one thing I was thinking about is I, I've been a wannabe vegan for like 20 years and I'm really bad at it because I love cheese. <laughs> um, but I was Googling this and I saw that like 80% of vegans are women. Um, 
And so I was thinking in terms of, you know, the movement in our culture to be more, uh, you know, to reduce animal suffering and animal cruelty. I think women are really driving the charge and they're driving the demand for that. Um, so to the extent that humans are being kinder to animals, I think probably um, the rise of women and the power and priorities of women uh, could potentially have been contributing to that. Um, in terms of the culture of academia, well, one, here's one. <laughs> so one thing I see uh, in my data I looked at like what should professors be fired for? And one of the questions was if a professor sleeps with their student, I think, uh, you know, their own student, um, men were less likely to say they should be fired and women were more likely to say they should be fired. And I have noticed a culture change at academic conferences over the past 10 years where things are a little less, um, what word should I? <laughs> it used to be like a pretty big party culture, like everyone was getting drunk and hooking up and cheating on their wives uh, and professors were sleeping with students. And I think women don't like that as much. Um, and so there have been these new codes of, you know, what's appropriate and can you make a pass at, you know, a grad student or an undergraduate student. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of men in particular, don't like those codes of conduct. But you know, I think if you're in a professional environment and the purpose of that professional environment is, you know, to share research and talk ideas, um, I don't think that the, you know, sexual free-for-all thing <laughs> should be part of that. Um, probably I'm going to piss some people off with that one, but but no, I think that's I agree a good thing. You. Yeah, no, I think actually <laughs> being a bit less horny is actually a good thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. even though, yes, it will it will um, annoy some of the horn dogs. But um, on the on the vegan point, actually, and this I mean this links to another question I want to ask. I used to be vegan for a few years, and I was vegetarian for longer than that. And I stopped. I started eating meat again when I got pregnant because I was mm. worried about getting enough nutrition for the baby and then I kept eating meat because of um want because I was feeding my son meat for the same reason I thought well if I'm feeding him meat it's easier if the whole family eats the same meal and anyway um and also because if I'm completely honest it's not that I don't care about animal welfare now I do and I do still like deliberately buy expensive meat and all this kind of stuff um it's that I but I I did used to care more and I think that it's I think it's partly because my maternal instincts were more channeled towards seeing animals as as, as infant-like and then when I had a real infant I stopped doing that and 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 I and I raise this because not to annoy people at home <laughs> although I feel like I will but because um I wonder how much that's a sort of factor in female psychology that, that that doesn't always go, that isn't always recognized by women themselves. I definitely now think that I used to, my, my, my maternal instincts used to be more easily hijacked before I had a child than they are now. And I, I wonder if this is a factor with women having, particularly in academia, like so many women in academia don't have children or have children very late, that that, that, that instinct is very easily hijacked by by say groups of people who are vulnerable, but who are not infants. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. One, because you're not the first person I know who 
was vegan for a long time. And then when they got pregnant and had kids, they stopped being vegan. And I think it's because, well, at that point you're prioritizing, I want to make sure I have my bases covered nutritionally. I'm getting enough protein. I'm getting enough calcium, iron, et cetera. So that all becomes way more important. Um, but the other point you raise is a really interesting one. Cause that's another thing that I'd been thinking, you know, people talk about the rise of victimhood culture. And I think that's another potential way that the priorities of women have influenced, you know, popular culture. So as you said, I think women's empathy is easier to manipulate. Um, and women are more, they're also more protective of like internal psychological, emotional harm than men are as men are more protective of like physical harm. I can see it. You're bleeding. Um, women are more concerned with the emotional, psychological harm that is not visible, which makes women really exploitable because um, you can't verify someone saying, oh, I can't help out because I don't, you know, I'm really depressed or I'm really anxious or whatever. Women are more likely to give that person a pass, which is actually incentivizing people to make those claims more often and even to feel internally that way. Like I can't contribute because of whatever uh, psychological trauma I'm, I'm suffering or suffered in the past. Um, so yeah, I do think the fact that women's empathy is easier to take advantage of potentially has contributed to uh, incentivizing the kind of behavior we see where, you know, people are suffering these, you know, mental health crises all the time that are so crippling that they can't, you know, they can't take tests, they can't go to class, they can't work and things like that. Um, it is an interesting question whether becoming a mother would change that. Um, I don't know of any research on that, but it would be a really interesting question to look at if, if women sort of their empathy is less easily hijacked because they're, they, that's, it's directed at someone, it's directed at their children. Um, and now they're in protection mode, protect these children, not just protect anything that's vulnerable that, that crosses my path. I don't have children, so <laughs> I'm like, oh, my dog is the most important thing in the world. <laughs> But I think you're clearly an outlier to some extent on this, or you wouldn't be doing all of this uh, outrageous <laughs> research. Perhaps. <laughs> um, yeah, perhaps. So thinking outside of academia, right? So if this is our, if this is what we're concluding about explaining at least some of the changes within academia within recent decades, it seems fair to assume that this probably applies in other areas of life too, because we, we, it, it's, it's, it's surely historically unprecedented to have so many women in so many positions of influence in public life. And it has been a rapid change. Academia is similar to other institutions in some ways. So I think, you know, like academics aren't the only ones getting canceled. Um, but there are other things. So, and this is related to like the whole coalitional competition thing. One thing we're seeing, again, I kind of end up going back to academia, but. Um, it's sort of less concern with or less prioritization of merit um, over equality and egalitarianism. And we're getting that in academia, but we're also getting it in other kind of workplaces too. Um, and it's happening also in high schools. So one thing that's happening is um, there's a huge problem with grade inflation throughout like K through 12 and then also in colleges where the average GPA is something like 3.6 now. Um, whereas I mean, when I was growing up, it was probably more like three. And I think before I grew up, it was lower than that still, because people used to say a C was an average. It was not an average. 
when I was in high school, um, or I don't think it was anyway. Um, and we're getting rid of standardized testing. And I think this is, you know, because men were working in these coalitions when they were hierarchical, they really benefited from figuring out who's the best, because these are the people who are going to make the best leaders and they could contribute the most and help everyone in the group. Whereas women, again, they really wanted to avoid threats. And so having people who have higher status and more power than you, that can potentially pose a threat. So you wouldn't necessarily want to reward people um, who are better and give them more status and power because you're giving them power and status that they potentially could use that to harm you now. Um, and so you do see this in the preferences of even little boys and girls. So there are studies where they had little boys and girls um, evaluate these drawings. And one of them was, or there were colorings. One of them was like colored in really nicely and then was just like all scribbles. And the boys were more likely to give more stickers to the good drawing. And the girls were more likely to distribute the stickers evenly across the two of them. And I even, I have, uh, my older sister has three daughters. Um, and I was with them over the summer in the Chesapeake Bay and they were playing a game and they were taking turns winning. <laughs> so they're, you know, one of them I think is 11, one seven and one four. And of course the 11 year old has a competitive advantage in all games. Um, but they decided, oh, now it's my turn to win. Now it's my turn to win. Um, so they have this, this, they want everyone to be equal. Um, and men are more comfortable with the fact that some people are going to be better than other people. And we should reward the people who are better than other people. Cause that incentivizes everyone to work harder. Um, so you have women now who are evaluating people and grading people, and they would rather everyone perform equally well. Um, even if they're not performing equally well. So I imagine that's influencing a lot of other workplaces too, where you have female managers, they might be more reluctant to penalize people who are performing poorly or reward the people who are performing really well. Um, one thing that I thought is, and I don't know if this is true, but one thing I thought is, I would imagine that as women have gained more power in society, we should have created more of a variety of like awards for people <laughs> so we should have created more things that you can excel at so you don't just have to be the best at this but you can be the best at this thing you know miscongeniality or um you know most improved or like all of these other things so that you can give everyone a prize and not just the person who's performing the best at this one specific thing um so i suspect that is happening too it's again it's one of those things it's not it's not bad per se for women to be more inclined towards egalitarianism versus men it clearly can be dysfunctional in certain settings it's also quite sweet like the story about your the little girls taking turns is really sweet um you know we we, we applaud that kind of behavior in children because it's kind because it's like you know creates friendships and the children don't feel left out and so on I'd say with almost all of these ways in which men and women differ, differ on average it isn't obvious that one is better it's just that they can cause dysfunction in specific circumstances. And I gotta say my experience of all female working groups or institutions is that it's pretty hard actually for them to function properly because that egalitarian instinct is such that it's it's very, very difficult to have hierarchy 
within a group and I think that hierarchy is necessary to effective working yeah I, I don't know I don't know how to frame that in a way that doesn't sound negative about it I if if, if I were well, starting a business I would not make it all women for that reason basically is my yeah I mean one one thing that I've thought about is so so yeah and I completely agree with you like it's not certainly it's not the case that men's traits are better across the board men are way more violent and aggressive and they commit like almost all of the murders (laughs) that's not a good thing um so (laughs) like women have uh traits that are advantageous in certain ways in certain environments and same goes for men and then you know they both have traits that can be you know not optimal um Sometimes I wonder, so a lot of the most important institutions in society were designed by men. So they were designed with male priorities as sort of the default mode, you know, um, organizations like take the military or, you know, police departments or the government, they're all hierarchical. You know, you have a top person and then a couple people below them and so on. Um, you know, the education system was designed by men. Pretty much all the systems were designed by men. And it's it's possibly just that because the organizations and institutions that humans are participating now, like because they were designed by men with male priorities, that's why it's noticeable when women come in and their values clash a little bit with that culture. Um, so I could imagine women could conceive of some entirely different kind of organization um, that would work with female priorities. I don't know what that would look like because we don't have a lot of great examples of that. But it seems possible to me that you could have something like that. And then introducing men into that system would be very disruptive. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of thinking about maybe some of the more negative ways women's values have impacted these institutions. It's not necessarily the case. It's just the case that these institutions were designed by men. And so sometimes, uh, not all the time, but sometimes women's values uh, conflict with that. And, and you know, with creating a lot of different awards for different things, like, I don't know if that's a bad thing. Like, more people get to feel good about themselves. Um, I don't think that's necessarily bad. I mean, I think you still want to, uh, like, reward people who are really skilled and competent so that you're incentivizing people to become excellent. Um, But I don't know that you detract from that by building other people up too um, and making everyone feel like they're contributing something to, to the group. Mm, mm. So it could be a positive aspect of women's tendency to, you know, want to, want to really make everyone feel good and make everyone seem like they're, they're sort of equal. Yeah, so in, I mean, teaching, right, a famously female-dominated profession, although it wasn't always, it did used to be much more masculine. Not, yeah, not always. <laughs> yeah, um, the, you know, that kind of hyper-inclusive, very kind, egalitarian kind of, maybe encouraging that in the classroom, you can see the upsides, you can see how that would be a more um, a more nurturing environment for children, whereas maybe the old masculine style of teaching where you, you know, not just more hierarchical and whatever, but like, like more corporal punishment. I, I, my, my strong suspicion is that the move away from corporal punishment, it, it doesn't just, it's not coincidental that it coincides with women's influx into teaching. I think that women being less physically aggressive is likely, is, is the likely factor there. And I would probably consider that probably a good thing in 
in education because I don't know if we need to be physically harming children. <laughs> children, you know, they they feel bad enough when you yell at them. I don't know if you need to right smack and we them can with the ruler or whatever. we can torment them in so many feminine ways there's really no need to <laughs> to use physical punishment because that is of course a thing like women can be sadistic they just tend to be sadistic in more uh indirect ways um yeah or like you know my suspicion for instance is that the drop in uh police violence that we've seen over the last say 30 years um, this isn't often advertised because there's a lot of misleading stats about police violence kind of rocketing around. Um, but actually, like police killings have gone down, deaths in custody in general have gone down. Um, I think that's probably because there are more women. <laughs> we know, for instance, that women are less like le- women are less likely to use uh, their weapons, be more police officers. Generally, less likely to kind of rough up suspects. You can certainly, well, as long as it main- as long as policing m- maintains. Is, is equally as effective while using less violence, right. then that seems to me to be a good thing. That would be a good thing. Yeah. And if you could do the same thing in the military, if you could find ways of resolving conflict via like negotiations rather than killing each other, <laughs> that would be a good thing too. Maybe. Um, okay. I got to say, I'm actually very, this is one of my most reactionary opinions. I, I, I'm, I don't think killing be- each other. <laughs> I don't think women should be oh, in the military. military at all. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for two reasons. One is that just the physical standard has to be so high. And it is so, I mean, even a woman who can pass the physical standard, there aren't very many of them, they're still going to be surely in the bottom decile of soldiers. So just the, the chances of any woman being as as physically adept. More likely to fall behind. Yeah, I'll just struggle with training, get injured, you know, all of the kind of bad outcomes from not being as as fit and as strong um but also i think there's the psychological stuff which you which is maybe more anecdotal i when i think there is some data so i think there's some data for instance suggesting that when a female soldier gets injured her male colleagues are more a more upset by it and b more likely to like stay behind and take risks to help her and so on that they might not take right. for a male soldier yeah i've heard that one too yeah and also more anecdotally there's so much like sexual romantic drama from having women in these in these places and it me- it kind of messes with the culture like you need to have an effective military you need a very very strong uh team spirit right and right. any kind of yeah. drama like that tends to just destroy that and maybe also men just behave differently in front of women like it's just a disruptive element that i don't think um i don't think makes any military more effective yeah that's a good so they yeah it's two problems one is they're like a good target for kidnapping and like sexual violence from the enemy which violence within the military as well like i remember reading and within the military american yeah. female soldier was more likely to be raped by a colleague than be killed by the enemy in iraq war um so that's that's also something like just from i don't want female soldiers to be subjected to that kind of risk either right Especially if there aren't many women around there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of men who probably would like access. Yeah, I, I don't really know a whole lot about, you know, the data that are happening in the military, but I, I can imagine that it could cause problems, especially in like particular divisions. Um, maybe there are some that are better, like, you know, women who are in the military, but they're not going to combat, uh, for example, maybe. Yeah. And then I guess you also don't want to deny, like, well, in the U.S. anyway, being in the military can be a pretty good job. Um, 
because you can get, you know, free education and stuff like that. But yeah, when it comes to the physical stuff, they're not most of the time going to be able to hang with the fellas. The the bell curves on those are very, the right. I think is the upper body strength. The bell curves are like barely overlapping at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, would that be, would you think, would you say that's the most profound difference between men and women, upper body strength? Or do you think that violence is a, is equally or more extreme? That's a really good question. And I should know that, but I don't. Yeah. Upper body strength, they're barely overlapping. I think hand grip strength, they're barely overlapping. And then, yeah, violence is also huge. Um, those are probably the three biggest. I mean, the other things like men's interest in things and women interest in people, but those are probably more similar than upper body strength. I mean, running speed obviously is also a huge difference. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what is the biggest one of all. Go through some of the other ones, particularly in terms of psychological differences that maybe are, maybe are less pronounced and maybe are less well known. Women are a little bit more agreeable and conscientious than men, which is one explanation people have provided for why women are dominating in education. They uh, outperform men in pretty much all subjects in school. Um, so when it, when it comes to psychological differences, I will say they tend not to be that huge. Some of them are pretty big, but a lot of them are fairly small. Um, but as we were saying, when you change group averages, then that's when you really see things. Um, men are more interested in, they have slightly better um, mental rotation abilities. Women are slightly more verbally tilted. So this is why, you know, we kind of have a stereotype that men are more into like math and science. That tends to be their comparative advantage, whereas women are more verbally tilted. So they're better at things like writing um, compared to some STEM disciplines. Um, then there are some of the obvious ones, like for example, men are you know more interested in making more money. Uh, they take more risks in their careers. Women are more interested in working less and spending more time with their families. Um, you know, they care more about the children. I think you can kind of see women are just more sort of attuned to the needs of their children and to other vulnerable people um, and, and, and animals, I suppose, too. I think men are maybe a slightly more open to ideas, uh, but I think that's a very small difference. So, I mean, when you look at a lot of things, men and women are really similar and they actually do have the same general priorities. It's just how do they weigh priorities when they come into conflict. Um, and so women will be a little bit more risk averse and men will be a little bit more willing to approach uh, risky things. So yeah, uh, again, like on an individual level, we're not going to see these that clearly. Like there are tons of women who have more masculine personalities and plenty of men who have more feminine personalities. Um, but on whole, you see these differences. And that's why really when you're looking at the differences between between men and women you want to look like in a large group of people um and so when you change dem demographics of an institution that's really when you're going to see those differences uh become more noticeable am i right as well that men tend to have more variation in psychological traits and also in physical traits so like on intelligence for instance men might be that the, the male mean is maybe slightly higher than the female mean, but not much. But the male variation is greater. So you have more men who are intellectually disabled and you have more men who are like genius IQ. Is that right? Yeah. 
So the greater male variability hypothesis, I think, is thought to apply to quite a few different domains. One of them is intelligence, um, where you have among people who would be geniuses. And as you get higher, the discrepancy would be higher. So top 2%, top 1%, top 0.1%. Uh, of intelligence, men are going to be overrepresented. And so that's why, well, I don't want to say that's why people, plenty of people will disagree with this. But like, when you look at people who are winning Nobel prizes, or people who are going to be, you know, the greatest writer of all time, um, or the greatest anything of all time, those are often going to be more likely to be men than women, even if it's in a, in an area that tends to be more feminine. Um, but you also have men at the bottom of the distribution and a lot of different things. And a lot of the people doing the worst off in society are men. Um, with the intelligence, this is one that I think is kind of a still ongoing thing where it does seem to be the greater male variability of more men at the top and more men at the bottom. Um, but some people are arguing that there is still a small average differences where men are maybe like around three IQ points higher than women. I don't know if that will ultimately be borne out, but it is potential that there's a small difference there as well. Um, however, a lot of that seems to be offset by other female characteristics, like the fact that they're more conscientious and um, they work a lot harder in school. They make better employees at a lot of things, um, precisely because they're more conscientious. So you can rely on them <laughs> more than you can rely on men a lot of the time. Um, and so even if men do have a slight intellectual advantage, um, it does seem to be the case that women are better at education, at least as it's currently uh, set up. Um, and they outperform men. I think men still do a little bit better on the quant portion of the SAT, um, GRE. I'm not sure about the verbal, but yeah, women are women are really schooling men in in school, <laughs> or girls, I suppose, are schooling men boys. <laughs> it is an interesting discovery, isn't it? That actually, when, um, well, and, and 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 one I think that kind of proves the fact that actually the differences now that we're seeing between men and women in terms of choice of profession and where they excel and so on are, 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 are mostly even overwhelmingly down to innate differences because we basically removed the lid on what women were allowed to access and we had this enormous influx of women into higher education in general, into medicine, into you know all sorts of places they'd previously been excluded from. We just didn't get this influx of women into other areas of STEM and so on, um, because, which is like maybe those. That's because those places are still clinging on to these more uh, hidden restrictions. But I think it's more likely it's just the women aren't as interested. <laughs> like women are interested in medicine because yeah. it's a caring profession that also that also obviously right. ha demands good scientific skills. They're just not as interested in physics, and that's fine. Like let people enjoy things. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of that is the people things difference. Yeah, women are, they're really interested in helping people. So yeah, they like, they'll go into biology and become doctors, um, but they're not going to do particle physics. They also don't even really like philosophy that much. Um, maybe that's because it's your, the, the subject of study is sort of ideas rather than people. Um, but, you know, psychologists are like 80% women now. Um, so it's not that women don't necessarily have you know, quant skills or aren't good at science, they they do approach a lot of sciences that are within the 
realm of what they would be interested in. I'm not convinced that there's much, if any, discrimination really happening against women in these STEM disciplines. And in fact, it's really a lot of the opposite. There are so many programs that are designed to try to bring women into all of the disciplines that they're underrepresented. And women are being greatly rewarded if they want to go into physics or philosophy or any area where women are vastly underrepresented because people care so much about women being represented. So anywhere a woman goes, if she goes somewhere where women are underrepresented, she's going to get all kinds of benefits and get award. Like I, uh, I have done some work in the experimental philosophy community, and I feel like I have been received in that world way better than I would be for my contributions, just because there aren't many women. Um, same goes for like in the academic freedom space, like men are more interested in it. They are more likely to be belong to these societies and these groups that promote academic freedom. So if you're a woman and you're interested in that, then you can, you know, um, hit above your, your level <laughs> in those domains. So, um, I, I've, I've had I the personally same think it's much and, more likely. Yeah, yeah. I've had the same experience. I'm in, sure you in, have yeah. in journalism and other places. Yeah. People are so nice to you as long as they don't like, as long as they don't like sexually harass you they'll be so nice to you so right. <laughs> wasn't I sometimes <laughs> anyway that's a complicated distinction but um but then I also have found that having being a mother is a massive disadvantage professionally in a way that being a father mm. is not so I kind of think that it evens out <laughs> if you're a woman who has children <laughs> then it's yes you'll, you'll get positive discrimination and you'll also get this like enormous practical various enormous practical impediments um if you're yeah, a woman who's not a mother, a, a, a lot of time to be a mother. Yeah. <laughs> the episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs>